Welcome to Ryan Rants and Raves, a podcast series by the Quebec government office in New York. Bienvenue à Ryan Rants and Raves, une série de podcasts par le gouvernement du Québec à New York. Today, I'm very honored and pleased to be with Dustin Jones, who is the CEO and co-founder of Unified Commerce Group. He has a plethora of experience and a great business acumen. Dustin, thank you for taking the time to be with me today. Ryan, it's a great pleasure to do it. I'm happy to be here. Can you just give me a brief overview about who is Unified Commerce Group and what inspired you to create it? The name sounds a little bit boring, but the backstory is is actually not so much. The, the, the founding of Unified Commerce Group was with me and a close friend of mine. We've been friends for 17 years, different industries, but we have a strong connection between our families. I was at the stage in my life where I felt like for the next, for the rest of my life, I wanted to be able to work with these talented groups of people that I'd been working with globally and build something that could create long-lasting value. And we created Unified Commerce Group because we saw significant changes happening in, in what consumers are wanting and how they're wanting to consume it. And we felt like there needed to be an organization that could unify these products with these consumers and could do it in a way that created a company that people wanted to be a part of and, and felt tremendous satisfaction. And, and so I'm proud to say that everybody that works on Unified Commerce Group, company I've worked with at some level in my past and have seen them be the best in their roles. And it was it's been my honor to sort of bring them in and put this together with my partner and raise investment around it and, and support around it. And then ultimately have it uh, operating and, and, and doing great things so far. Great. Thanks for that. And, and uh, you know, I read even on your board, those who you're working with, they have skills that all complements one another. So I, I saw that you have Terry Lundgren, who used to be at Macy's, and then you have also Nicole Ritchie, among others. Yeah, you know, we have an eclectic board. All of these people dominate in their industry, but they have really unique value that they add to, to we call it Unified Commerce Group, we call UCG. Terry is one of the top CEOs in the world. He was ranked as one of the top CEOs in the world. I worked for him for 14 years. He has incredible vision and incredible respect. And more than anything, he knows me and he's a tremendous mentor to our, our group as a retailer. And people like Nicole, they, they have their fingers on the pulse of fashion. She's yeah. had so much influence. She also is bold and, and outspoken about a lot of things that, that in terms of social causes that we align around. And, and she has a really good sense of, of where we should be going with our investments. And her husband, Joel, is a visionary in his field, and he has an incredible business sense. And, and then we have, you know, people from Asia as well. We have supply chain leaders. We have incredible influencers like Bonnie Chen on our group that just know that area and know what consumers want there and have tremendous pull by those consumers. So it's been fun to put that group together. And, and definitely in one sitting, they offer incredible, uh, incredible advice. Well, I imagine it's a group that pushes you to continue to push the envelope, which is always exciting. And when you know them the way you know them, the motivation you feel to do what you say you're going to do is, an, is incredible. And that's always important. But this also leads me to my next question, because you guys invest in brands. But how do you find the next generation of retail brands, given that there is so many brands on the market? What it, what it comes down to is a few things. The, the first thing is, is that you have to have a strong position in where and what you believe the next generation of brand looks like. And we always say it's never been easier to create a brand, but it's never been harder to scale it. There's so much competition. There's so much distraction in social media with small brands and, and digital only brands that can capture consumers' wallets. It's easy to get going, but it's really hard to break through and, and capture 
more than a single area in, in our space. And so we focus on brands that have a couple of characteristics. The first is, is that they are purpose-driven. And we believe that consumers are moving away from designer-driven brands, moving away from fast fashion, and they're moving into conscious consumption. And conscious consumption means that they want to belong to, subscribe to, identify with the brands that they buy. And they oh, it's almost like they're voting for these brands with their yeah. money. And so that for us is an important space to play in. And a lot of those brands are still early in their journey. Then we look for brands that are digitized, they're data-driven, they have characteristics that will work beyond their home market, characteristics that will work in North America and Asia. And because of the network that we have, I'm a 20-year retailer. Uh, our team is all from very, very professional, uh, great companies in their past. We've developed a great network of pull that allows us to look at a lot of really incredible companies. I like what you said about um, the purpose-driven and then the conscientious part of um, being a part of a group, because that is what the new retail and fashion is. You know, if you're part of streetwear, you know, you, you might be a part of Arcturix or Dime Montreal, or if you're part of sustainability, then you might be a part of a brand like Frank and Oak, which we'll chat about later. Well, when you think about what people buy and why they buy it, what motivates them, they generally are motivated by obviously the end use of the product, but they're also motivated by the identification of that product with the way they choose to live their lives. And, and one of the things we like about purpose-driven brands is when your purpose is right, your permission to develop a lot of different types of product is broad. And so you don't become just a one-trick, one-item brand. You, you become a brand with behind its purpose has permission to develop a lot of unique products. And that for us is what makes those companies so interesting is the the, the different ways in which we can serve consumer we can serve consumer communities. This leads me to the question about Frank and Oak because you know this is an investment that you guys recently made. Can you speak about how Frank and Oak came on your radar? What a great brand! You know, I I, I honestly feel like it's such a, an honor to be uh, a part of the of that brand and a part of what Ethan and Hisham as as founders built, and a part of the the sort of community that that team and that organization is. When we set out our thesis in 2019, we spent most of 2019 raising capital against that thesis, bringing in partners, board members, key talent, all of that kind of work. And towards the end of 2019, we started to look at investment. And as we started to talk within our network about different brands that we would be looking at investing in, we looked at 72 different brands. And, and, and a woman that worked for me who's Canadian and, and just one of my favorite people in the world she called me and in one of our discussions says we should really look at Frank and Oak and I'd never heard of it. And so we did, we got connected. We saw, we saw its value and then COVID happened and through COVID and through this opportunity to look at so many brands, we had a lot of choices in what to invest in, but ultimately we felt like Frank and Oak was exactly what we were looking for. The purpose, the data-driven, digitized, direct, the way that they empowered consumers and thought about their consumers and in particular the way the organization just were is an organization of believers they're advocates for the brand and they carry the banner every day in, in the way they uh, approach work and and you know they're certified b so that drives right into their purpose about being sustainable and you know they started as a d2c company um, so they have that digital and that data at their core and what they have more than anything is they've spent a lot of time innovating and positioning themselves as a brand in the right space. 
Certified B, of course, is an important piece, but it's just culturally who they are to be the most sustainable that they can be, to innovate in product in, in ways that other people are not innovating, which gives them permission uh, and, and a position of uniqueness. You know, the number one item they had this year in the fall in apparel was a, was a sea wool sweater, which is plastic, recycled plastic and oyster shells. And it's, it's, it's blended together to create almost like an acrylic polyester feel, but it was, it's a beautiful sweater that we sold a lot of, of product in. And, and I just love the way that the, the brand is consistently innovating and finding new ways to bring apparel to the market that is better for, it's kinder to our planet, it's kinder to our people and kinder to our purpose. The other thing is, is that the brand is unique because of its pull. It's, it's almost 50% exactly men and 50% exactly wow. women in terms of its consumption. And not, there are not many brands that have that characteristic. And that was, that was another reason why, why we uh, felt so strongly about the brand and, and how we could, we could grow it together with them. What I do like is, you know, since you guys have, you know, been a part of Frank and Oak that you have maintained the roots to Montreal. And, you know, even for the holidays, um, you brought some third-party brands that map the ethos of Frank and Oak on for the holiday shopping. So it's great to see that. Yeah. Frank and Oak has always been a curator and as much as it's a brand, it's also a, a retail organization. And so customers have always given Frank and Oak permission to curate and support other local businesses and other growing businesses. And we see Frank and Oak and the team there as a hub for us to be able to build out a strong fashion-driven organization out of Montreal, like we're doing in China, like we're doing in New York. And, and, and so we, we view Montreal as more than just Frank and Oak, and, and that team is more than just one brand. We view them as a team that will innovate over time to support other brands and, and other uh, retail opportunities that, that can serve Canadians and, and where other brands can leverage the experience and the good work that the team at Frank and Oak has done and be able to benefit from that. I do now want to segue into a bit about the Chinese market because you have a great deal of experience. You know, you launched um, Macy's in, in China with a joint venture with the Fun Group, and you're also the managing director at the Fun Group. But why is the Chinese market a great opportunity in your opinion? I've spent the last five years of my life dedicated to retail in China. I had the chance to meet the early leaders of the Alibaba Group, which is one of the largest organizations now in the world and at the digital sort of leading digital innovator, I believe, in the world uh, in retail. And, and when you live in China and you lead Chinese organizations and you see the way they work and the way they innovate, and the power of that consumer, it's inspiring. And from a retail perspective, somebody who spent their entire life digitizing and disrupting in retail, what I thought I was doing in the United States was great. Moving to China, what, what I saw we could do was just so much more accelerated. And so one is the power of innovation and the power of speed and, and process that, that happens in that market. But the other is the sheer power of that consumer. China is a billion three in population. At less than half of its population today is, is or about half is, is in middle-class incomes, which are still below the you know, Canadian middle class and the U.S. middle class, but they have a tremendous appetite for consumption. And there are more middle-class Chinese than there are middle-class North Americans. And it's a staggering statistic when you think about it and the way that their economy is growing and the way that their GDP grows year over year. So there's just this incredibly powerful consumer that 
for the most part, has been in China, but over the last few years is starting to influence everywhere. I mean, and, and I think, you know, Canada is a great example of the percentage of uh, Canadian-born Chinese or Asian Canadians that, that are in that market. The Asian-American population is the fastest growing population demographically in the United States. Uh, and so Chinese are the, now the largest tourist in the world. And I know during COVID that's not really happening, but pre and post COVID, you will see the Chinese are the largest tourist to any, you know, globally and then spend the most amount. And they're the largest retail consumer. China surpassed the United States this year as the largest retail economy in the world. And so when you're thinking about what's happening in the world, in the world today, where there are no barriers in logistics and supply chains, people are buying product from Shenzhen, China and getting it delivered in five days. Chinese are buying product from New York and getting it delivered in four days. There's just no barriers to consumption. There's no barriers to language anymore. And as a result of that, the world is converging. And, and, the, and then so what was happening is consumer power is converging. And a lot of that consumer power is being led by Chinese. And so it's been my great pleasure to get to know their culture, get to know their people and the kindness within them, get to know and be inspired by the organizations that have been predominantly Chinese that I've led. And it was important to me in the next phase of my career that I made and respected the investment my family and I had made in that part of the world. What I also read about China is, or just about their GDP is like, they're probably one of the few only economies that didn't shrink due to COVID um, as opposed to you know, like the U.S. and Western Europe. Due to COVID, their economy shrunk, but you know, China still grew within that and they've managed the virus very well. So that will also help in future growth. Well, it's always debatable, you know, because there's always a veil that people see over China. So there's lots of cultural perceptions of China and particularly around COVID. But there are some things that from experience on the ground, I can tell you. One is, is when people talk about COVID in China, our teams, you know, of, of people that are there, COVID was six weeks for them. They do have some restrictions, you know, they're not traveling internationally, but China's a massive country and they, people have been yeah. traveling all over. And for, for the most part, it's been business as usual and family as usual. Chinese New Year is a little bit different uh, because the people aren't necessarily all traveling home like they normally would. But I would say economically, you know, everybody's been receiving their paychecks and, and stores have been open for the all but six weeks of 2020, 2021. And because of their, you know, uh, cultural attachment to, you know, Confucianism and, and viewing the, the greater good as more important than the single individual, when they have to align around, let's say, locking down, they do it. And they do it, uh, they do it uh, because culturally it is their view on the right thing to do is to put the greater good ahead of their own good. And so if that means that they are going to lock down for a long time, they'll, they'll do it. And as a result of that, they bounce back faster. And, you know, that's a, that's an asset to their culture of being community driven, as opposed to Western Europe, that's more individualistic because that shows that could be a reason or argument to why Asia itself has handled the virus in a lot different manner. Yeah. And it's not just China, of course, like you, like you've said, Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan is essentially completely controlled it. And, and there are the, the, the culture and the history, which many of us in the, in the Western world don't really understand that well. But if you study it and you read about the years and thousands of years of history and influence, you see how just culturally they handle these things. They also experienced things before like SARS that we didn't. Yeah. 
And there's always the debatable differences between the good and the bad of culture. And certainly, I think that the social side of that space has allowed them to get through COVID in a, in a more rapid manner. I read this book, Confucius Lives Next Door. I don't know if you ever read that book, but it speaks about how the Asian countries, you know, during a lot times of hardship, they come together and adapt because they want the best for the community. Yeah, I'm obsessed with it. The, the study of culture, for me, moving to Hong Kong and then, and then working in China was the seventh country that <laughs> I'd had the pleasure of spending uh, time living in and learning the language uh, to the extent that I could, studying the people, reading the culture through, through various books that were recommended to me, visiting the sort of landmarks and learning. All of that is such an important part of developing cultural empathy to the, to the consumer there. And you can't serve the consumer unless you have that empathy and understanding. And so one of the things I would say to anybody that's listening is we, as we become a global society, we are going to have to be culturally empathetic as well. And for me, having, having been in different parts of the world, uh, that's something that through my upbringing, I was able to learn that has served me well. I do now want to jump to, in a sense, the ethos of the podcast, because it's called Rants and Raves. Is there anything you'd like to share that you're excited about or frustrated about, both or one or the other? For me, the excitement I, I have is around the future of our lives and our work uh, as a part of our lives. If you think about what I was doing personally uh, over the last four years, over the last four years, I, I spent more than 150 nights a year in hotels traveling. I would go to more than 15 countries. And it was a huge sacrifice to be able to lead globally and, and be in a global marketplace but I think COVID has changed that tremendously. I think that the need for me to travel the way I was traveling before has been disrupted. I think the ability to work from home and work from where you want yeah. is, is our future, which is going to give our families more work-life balance. I think the trends and shifts into more athleisure and outdoor products is going to allow us to incorporate our hobbies into our you know, work culture and and I just, for me, as someone who still has 25 years left to work and was exhausted by the type of work, not by the purpose of work, but just, just the rigor of what it required, I think COVID has, has given me permission as a leader to think differently and, and also just to be a better human and living my interests. So that for me is, is exciting and to lead an organization into that and be a part of it is exciting. I think I think my rant would be, that I'm itching to travel. So it's the opposite. <laughs> you know, uh, I've hired people that I haven't met face-to-face -face this year, so a significant amount of them. We invested in a company and, and never met a single person face-to-face. -face. We have teams of people in Asia that are operating that I haven't seen in a year. Uh, we've had people invest in us that I haven't ever met. And you know, one of the things that I'm looking forward to as we get past this is the chance to is to see these people face to face, thank them, and connect with them at a at a personal level. And so, the sooner that we can all get vaccinated, the better for me. Agree. No, and you know, meeting someone in person is completely different than being via Zoom. There's just a different nuance um, of chemistry that Zoom cannot create, in my opinion. I just think that it shows your commitment to people too. I always think that the face-to-face -face interactions are the ones that show your true commitment. And Agreed. So I need to do, I need, I, I'm, I'm due to make those happen. 
in due time. And but what I want to close on is, you know, I think you've given a lot of advice during you know this conversation. But do you have any advice to brands, retailers, or anyone else within the fashion community? I've been in fashion since I was young. I was 16 when I got my first job in fashion. I was given a fashion scholarship out of high school. I started my first fashion company at 21. So I've been doing it for a while. I'm 40 now, so I still got a long ways to go. So I've seen, in even in my time, a lot happen. And I know that COVID has affected a lot of jobs and it's affected a lot of friends and companies in in ways that were unanticipated. And I've seen half of the members of my family lose jobs, lose incomes. Building this company, I obviously went a significant amount of time not bringing in any income myself until until things were stable and investment was stable and investing in the business myself. And that was a courageous period for me. But if you are going to be in this industry, then you are going to need to have the stomach for disruption. And you're you're going to have to understand that at some point in your career, you're going to go through, you're going to be in an organization that will get disrupted. Now, ideally, you're always so ahead of the curve that you're you're only in disruptive organizations, but chances are over a 30 or 40 year career that that is going to happen. You're going to find yourself in an organization or leading an organization or a part of an organization that, that is either getting disrupted or being the disruptor and probably both. And you have to have the stomach for those because that forces you to shift your career and shift the value you, you create in the industry that you're a part of. And I've done a lot of different things in my career to consistently stay ahead of the curve and add consistent value. And, and I think for, for people that, are, that have that taste and have that desire to be a part of this very creative and exciting industry that's constantly changing, it's important to have the stomach. But then it's, it's also important to understand that disruption is the, the, gives birth to new creation and new opportunities. And I've been through several recessions now. I, in 2008, I was a part of an organization at Macy's that had its all-time low stock price. We had to shed a lot of jobs. I was fortunate enough to keep mine. And through that process, I watched the leaders of the company create a vision for the future that added incredible value and incredible growth and incredible innovation and incredible numbers of jobs over the next 10 years. And, and we saw the benefit of being leaders in disruption, allowing ourselves to see it for what it was and then accelerating through it with innovation. And I believe the next couple of years are going to be the best years in retail that we've seen in our industry ever as a result of the, the shifts and trends that COVID has forced. And so I, I think, you know, from my perspective, I'm excited about that. And I, and I give everybody advice to approach these next couple of years with tremendous optimism and put their put themselves in a place to take advantage of what's coming after. And what I like what you mentioned is the word value. And I think that is something that everyone should try to think on their day-to-day is how can you add value to someone else? Because if you always think about in what way you can add value to your role or to others, I think you're going to ride the wave of disruption as opposed to drown in the wave because you're continuing to be ever-present in the moment. Yeah, there's no job that is constant. No, no job is constant. There's always technology. There's always trend shifting. There's always companies accelerating and decelerating. And so one of the biggest mistakes that people make as they progress through their rear careers is they, is they sort of take ladder step jobs and they look for promotions and a little bit more bonus and a little bit more title. 
but the reality is, is that your job, your career is not linear. Your job, your role, your one specific role might be linear, but the reality is, is that your career is not. And if you view it as never leaving college, you're going to do yourself well, never stop investing in yourself yeah. and your knowledge and your value. And then you will naturally be magnetized towards the right things. But when you become stale and when you become comfortable, that's ultimately when disruption starts to settle in. This is, this is a great conversation, Dustin, and thank you for the advice and your time. And, you know, I look forward to chatting shop with you again and, you know, continue following the newness that um, Frank and Oak continues to share with us. Uh, so thanks again. Merci beaucoup. Thank you, Ryan. It's a great pleasure and all the best to you. Merci d'avoir écouté Ryan's Rants and Raves. Suivez-nous sur Instagram at Ryan's Rants and Raves. Thank you for listening to Ryan's Rants and Raves. Follow us on Instagram at Ryan's Ransom Raves. A très bientôt.